Listen now to the Word of God. Again, Acts 16, verses 6 through 15. And um, yes, I forget what page that's on in your Bible. <laughs> Look it up and you can help one another. The Word of God. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the Word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia and attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So reads the word of God. What do we take from this? Very good question. As I open this morning, though, I want to quote from a different text. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Do you recognize it? Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. I believe this is the clearest statement anywhere in Scripture of what we should learn from our text in Acts 16 this morning. So I lay it down in front of us from the very beginning, and we will come back to it very near the end, understanding that this text really does tell us how to respond to what we read in Acts 16. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. It's the final verse of that song, Psalm 27. It's a psalm about God being our guide and being our protector. He is our light and our salvation, David writes there. He will always be there when we call, we recognize, as we move through that psalm. And he'll always be reliable throughout this life and on into the next. Do you hear me? He will always be reliable throughout this life, and right on into the next. So we should wait for him, David says. Wait patiently, knowing that he will act. He will be true to his character. He will keep his promises to us. He is a reliable God. He is 
present. He is attentive. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No promise of wealth there, but a promise of the presence of God at every time of need. He will be true to his character. He will keep his promises to us even if they seem to be delayed. We have a strange account before us today here in Acts 16. One that can seem as strangely familiar to us as it sounds strangely unlikely for Paul, the Apostle Paul here in Luke's history of the early church. It's a strange experience for Paul, but it's a common one for us. We don't often run into that. We run into many things that seem common for Paul that seem strange to us. This one, you could flip it around. So let's take this passage this morning in two equal parts and just see what it says to us and see what we can learn from it. You can see the outline that's there in your bulletin. It's five verses each, splitting the passage right in the middle. First of all, waiting to hear from the Lord. It's not hard to see that in the text of verses 6 through 10. And finally, the fruit of listening to the Lord. Waiting to hear from the Lord and the fruit of listening to the Lord. Let's move into this text together and see what we find. Well, following what appears to have been a somewhat spontaneous initiative on Paul's part to go visit the churches that they had most recently planted. Do you remember that back at the end of chapter 15? It's as though Paul just said to Barnabas one day, hey, let's go back and visit the churches. So after a somewhat spontaneous initiative, as it appears in the text, which was then followed by a buildup of anticipation for his second missionary journey, we actually are getting high expectations here. We see, we are anticipating what's coming. They're going to go back out on the road again. And many things are happening right there at the beginning that just sort of stoke our expectation. Do you remember, we saw the conflict, the sharp disagreement that arose between Paul and Barnabas there also at the end of chapter 15. Then he and Silas were sent off, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, Luke records. And then Barnabas and Mark sailed off to Cyprus. So now, because of this conflict, there's actually double the number of missionaries and two fronts of the gospel advance that have resulted from it. I've mentioned to some, as we've talked about it this week, that seems to have been the resolution for Paul and Barnabas. Yes, they disagreed. Yes, it sent them off in opposite directions, but it doubled the witness and the ground that was covered. That's building expectation for what we're going to see here in this second missionary journey. Something is afoot. God is doing something here. Then we see at their first stop there in Lystra, Paul added Timothy to his team with all that entailed. There was a reaffirmation of right there at the end of that text from last week that their visits found the churches that they had planted strengthened in the faith. They were strong and growing. Again, anticipation, building. So what happened? Answer? Nothing. Nothing. Look at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit, 
to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and Troas is where we hear about the Macedonian call. We've got to take a few minutes with this because this is amazing. This is unusual. This is strange in the experience of the Apostle Paul, even though it might feel very common and familiar to us. As I read this passage, these three verses, I'm reminded of the slitting of the seventh seal in Revelation 8. Do you remember that passage? Revelation 8, verse 1. With each of the first six seals that were slit, the seals of the the scroll that had been held in the hand of him who is righteous and true. And as they slit the six seals, there was stampeding war and violence and famine and death, followed by pleading in heaven and, and, and cataclysmic destruction on earth. And then came the seventh seal. It was slit. And there was what? Silence. Silence, John records. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. You ever sat in half an hour of silence? We give two or three minutes to silent prayer. And we start getting nervous and fidgety. We allow a couple of minutes for personal confession in a worship service, and we're uneasy. I was just reading the scripture at my, or actually leading in the congregational prayers at my brother-in-law's funeral last week, and I paused a little too long waiting for the prayers of the people to be offered in silence, and um, someone else read my closing statement for me. (laughs) That's not a problem, but we're uncomfortable with silence. A half an hour of silence in the presence of God on the heels of the opening of the first six seals? Are you kidding me? It's a bewildering development, but it was poignant. And it builds into our understanding of the book of Revelation, but we don't want to get caught off there. We want to see what happened here. All this buildup for the second journey and then nothing. They're wandering west. Here in Acts 16, Paul and his team traveled northwest through Phrygia and Galatia. We read there in the opening of verse 6. Only to be forbidden by the Holy Spirit for an unknown reason. To speak the word in Asia. Was that because Asia was under the judgment of God? I don't know. Paul went to Asia in his third journey. Just not now. It's forbidden by God. Now, now Paul didn't know he was going to go to Asia in his third journey. They're just moving northwest across Phrygia and Galatia, and they're going to look to Asia. It's to their south and west a little bit. But the Holy Spirit forbids them from going. How? We don't know. There's a lot of speculation in the text about how this was communicated. We really don't see it. The next one has a little bit of thought behind it. Verse 7. They went on, and they were not allowed by, this time, the Spirit of Jesus. Again, no stated reason to enter Bithynia. That would be to their north and to their east. Now, here with the Spirit of Jesus, really unusual expression. Some things similar to it in the New Testament, but nothing exactly like this. It seems like it may have been said this way because it's a reference to the word of a prophet 
And we know from chapter 15 that Silas was a prophet. Did God speak through Silas and say, no, not to Bithynia? The Spirit of Jesus saying no. So they're, they're wandering northwest through Asia. No to Asia. No to Bithynia. And then the text says they move on past Mysia. They're probably in Mysia at the time. The city of Troas was in Mysia. They didn't go into either way. So one of the commentators says it this way. They just continued traveling on from southeast to northwest extremities of Asia Minor by a strangely circuitous route toward Troas. If you trace it on the map, how far? Probably about 400 miles. Minimally, it was at least 400 miles. You can trace it by other means and get as many as 450 up to 500 miles that they traveled doing what? Nothing. At least nothing reportable. Luke doesn't record what they did during those times. He just records that they moved through this area. It was a no here, it was a no here, and they got to Troas. How long would this have taken? Let's just do a little math. If they covered an aggressive 20 miles a day, which I would say is unlikely because really they were looking to preach all along the way. But if they covered 20 miles a day and if they traveled six days a week, it would have taken them a full month to cover the ground that we cover in just a couple or three verses here in Acts 16. Given what was going on and how it was happening and how I'm sure there was some sort of discussion and prayer about going to Asia, some about going to Bithynia, a decision not to. You can see on your maps in your Bibles kind of the route that they must have followed based on an understanding of the topography and the, the roads of that day. It could easily have been three or four times that, three to four months, if not longer, that they spent wandering northwest through Asia Minor. No ministry report coming during that whole time. Then they finally arrive in Troas, verse 8. And when they arrive in Troas, something happened. Look at verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so ends the first section of this passage. The team concluded that this was a call from God. This vision Paul had had of the Macedonian man, they decided in community, we might say, it sounds like through discussion, we concluded together that, that weighing out the, the, the don't go and now the come help messages from God, figuring out what they mean. So Luke records, they readied themselves immediately to leave for Macedonia, verse 10. It may have still been night, we don't know. But if, even, if it, even if it was, that was okay with them. Why? Because we're starting to understand their experience a little bit. When God breaks into the midst of that and gives you something that you conclude is a leading, 
You are ready to go. They've been waiting a long time to hear from the Lord. And they were ready. Ever been there? Waiting of different sorts. Have you ever been there? We know what this feels like, don't we? Long delays that don't seem to make any sense to us whatsoever. But then in the midst of it, we hear a sermon. We, we, we read a passage of Scripture. We have a conversation with a friend. And all of a sudden, it seems like God has spoken. And what happens within us at such times? The thrill of thinking that something may be afoot. Something may be awaiting us. God has a plan that he's putting before us. We'll come back to that a little bit later. One thing I want to note that's of interest here, and then we'll move on into section two of this passage. It's interesting that this is the first place that we see what are known to commentators as the we passages in Acts. This is the first place where it shows up here in verse 10 where Luke moves into a first-person narrative. We know from other texts that Luke was with the Apostle Paul at different points, but this is the first time in Acts where he's saying something in the first person. So he's present with them here. This leads many to believe that Troas was the place where Luke joined Paul, Silas, and Timothy on the team, and others think that, that he was even from there. He was from Philippi. And he was over in Troas and met them, and that was part of perhaps how they discerned what the Lord was doing. But with that, let's just press on for the moment and see what happens next here. Secondly, the fruit then of listening to the Lord. Verses 11 through 15, action finally happens. The, the rubber meets the road and, and, and the vehicle shoots into motion. Samothrace here in verse 11 where we read that uh, they stopped there on the way to Neapolis. Samothrace is a mountainous island. It's actually, if you look up the word, it's Samothrake. You know, weird pronunciation. I think if I said it that way, I would lose your attention for the rest of the morning. So I'm not going to say it that way. I'm going to say Samothrace because that's what it looks like, uh, anglicized, shall we say. Uh, it was a mountainous island in the Aegean Sea. It was about halfway between Troas and the Macedonian port city of Neapolis. The total journey there from Troas to Neapolis was about 125 miles, and they made it in two days on this ship, so they must have had a very nice tailwind, some have reported. Philippi, then, was the first place where they landed. They got there to Neapolis. They, it sounds like they immediately moved on to Troas, I'm sorry, to Philippi, which was another 20 miles or so northwest from Neapolis into the, to the inland along the Ignatian Way, a, a road that we are familiar with from our studies in history. So they would have taken the Ignatian Way from Neapolis up to Philippi, about 20 miles, and Luke records there, it was a leading city in the district of Macedonia, not the capital, but a leading city, and a Roman colony. It's also a, a storied site in, in world history. Uh, it was named by Philip of Macedon in about 360 B.C. Guess who he named it for? That's a trick question, folks. Come on, are you with me or not? Who did Philip of Macedon name Philippi after? Okay, all right, good. Philip of Macedon... Philippi of Macedonia. Similarity of words there that can catch our attention. Um, 
It was also the site, by the way, of, uh, of Brutus and Cassius, uh, of the defeat of Brutus and Cassius by Antony and by Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus, following the murder of Julius Caesar in 42 B.C. So it was a, it was a storied place, Philippi. And some suggest that Luke actually may have been born right there in Philippi and also received his medical degree there in the city. There's hints in the text that he's pretty proud of this area, this leading city of Macedonia, as he called it. And we're aided along in that conclusion, not just by his language, but by the we passages that begin here. This is where they pick up Luke, somewhere in this portion of the trip. Well, now, life in Philippi. From the team's first activity on their first Sabbath day there, which is recorded in verse 13, it seems almost certain that there was no synagogue there because it's reported that they didn't go to the synagogue. It doesn't say he doesn't go to the synagogue. There's just no synagogue is mentioned. They actually just went outside the city to find a place to pray. The Ganchites River was just over a mile outside of town from the city gates, we're told, And that's where they sat down and spoke to some women who had gathered there. Still in verse 13. And they discovered there a woman from Thyatira who was a worshiper of the one true God. It makes it sound like she had embraced the Jewish faith. Um, And even though there wasn't a synagogue there in Philippi, she was a worshiper of God. And not just of the gods, but of the one true God. They found a sister here. Walking by faith in the same God they were preaching just didn't know Christ yet. And she was from Thyatira, it says, and she was a seller of purple. Thyatira was known for making purple dyes. It was located in the the Roman province of Asia, but it's interesting that it had been part of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. So, it's almost certain that that was the basis for her name. Some suggest that this is actually, might just be the, the Lydian lady, the lady from Lydia. We take her name to be Lydia, though, and those who study such things suggest that it has a slave background from that period of history. So it's quite possible that she was a self-supporting free woman, probably unmarried, And was doing quite well for herself by selling purple dyed items from her home region. That's who they meet as the primary personality at the river when they go out on the Sabbath day to pray. Lydia's household here, mentioned in verse 15, may suggest that she had children. But more likely, the reference to her household was that she had adult housemates. There were other women who lived with her. Since that's what they're called back in verse 13, the women. They saw the women gathered at the river. So that's the indication that's there probably. And seeing how carefully she offered hospitality there at the end of verse 15 as well is a suggestion that she was probably inviting the missionaries into a home that was inhabited by women. So she said, if you judge me to be worthy, then come and stay with us. We have room. You hear the uniqueness of that invitation. Um, Luke says she prevailed upon us. Um, And it appears that though they stayed there then for some days, that was recorded a little earlier in the text, how long they stayed in Philippi. Regardless, though, of these particular details, which are helpful to just getting a sense of the story, 
with as brief a detail as here. The sweetest thing that is said about Lydia here is said in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Once again, salvation is of the Lord. And it wasn't just Lydia whose eyes were opened. We see that the Lord opened each of their hearts because she was baptized and her household as well, it says here, verse 15. Then Lydia persuaded them to stay with them, as we said, in her house. And they did so, as verse 12 listed, for some days. So that's the whole story. Not a whole lot happened except that this woman and all of her housemates came to saving faith in Christ. They were baptized, and then they gave a home base for Paul and for Silas and for Timothy and apparently for Luke as they stayed there in Philippi. So what is this passage saying to us? What good is this to us? What do we take from this? Well, I want to take just a few minutes to walk you through what I think could be three lessons, three summary lessons from this text that we can take with us, having seen how we might be able to identify with their experience even more so than we think they would have been able to identify with it. There's some things that we can take away from this that I think could be really helpful. First, God does not always lead with what we would consider efficiency. You okay with that? (laughs) God does not always lead with what we would consider efficiency. Even on this second of only three missionary journeys, for the Apostle Paul, we don't see things going smoothly. Not by human experience, not, by a, not from a human vantage point. Things are developing differently than we would expect. This team needed to listen to God intently and continuously all along the way just to discern where and where not to go. And they endured what, had, what, what just had to seem like A very long delay in the process. We'd grow pretty uneasy in their place, wouldn't we? Four months of wandering, doing nothing, worth reporting. We'd be pretty tempted to act on our own, wouldn't we? as they very well may have done themselves. Though, again, Luke records none of that. Shouldn't speculate. But it's entirely possible a lot can happen during the season of time that they were wandering west across Asia Minor. How about these long days of delay that we're in? How about all the things that we can't do during this season? All the things that are complicated, all the things that are impeded. For COVID, yes, but... You go through the households of this church and there's one thing after another that are adding delay upon delay, inefficiency upon inefficiency in this season. How are we doing? Our experience of this pandemic and the, the frustrating inefficiencies it's generated 
are, are really quite different from what the missionaries were facing here. I will grant that. It's quite different from what they were facing here. But our experience might help us understand how they may have felt in their circumstances. Number one, we could gain some insight into where, what they may have been sensing as they were moving west, doing essentially nothing. And their model of faithful endurance could surely be a lesson to us in our circumstances. That's why I pointed out. From every indication in the text, they took the, the unexplainably odd limitations they faced. I mean, why would it ever be a problem to take the gospel into new regions like Asia and Bithynia and Mysia, right? They took the unexplainably odd limitations that they faced and just pressed on listening to God and waiting for Him to lead, waiting and waiting and waiting for Him to say, yes, now's the time, here's the place. How well do we do with that? How well do we do with waiting, with divine inefficiencies, with with letting God be God and with letting God lead us in His time, how do we do with that? Lest I get snagged on this point, let's move on to lesson two. It's related. Delays and false starts are not outside of God's providence. Delays and false starts are not outside God's providence. This could sound like just another way of saying the same thing that lesson one says, but I don't believe so. I believe it adds something. It's not just a possibility that God might lead inefficiently from our perspective. It's not just a possibility. Delays and what could look to us like false starts are very present with us and they are all part of, of His providence, part of His plan in our lives that we need to see and understand and appreciate and embrace and learn from. And respect, even as the missionaries did. Clearly, the Lord was guiding the team's steps throughout this brief passage. There's no question but that God was sovereignly in control of what was happening. It was, after all, the Spirit that said no to Asia and no to Bithynia. It would appear as though it was also the Spirit that sent the vision to the Apostle Paul in Troas to hear the call to Macedonia. Clearly, the Lord is guiding the team's steps throughout this brief passage, but still, fully half of it, half of these ten verses, is about their inaction. That's unusual in Scripture. And this is a missionary journey. Half the passage is about where they didn't go and what they didn't do. And even when God did lead... Through Paul's vision at Troas, the Macedonian call, as it's known, and it's the title of our message this morning, even when God did lead through Paul's vision, they had to put the pieces together. Did you catch that word concluded in verse 10? They had to put the pieces together. They had to conclude that God had called them. They had to discuss in community, as we said a little bit earlier, what God had done and discern his calling together. That's how Luke records it here. 
It was his denial at the threshold of Asia and Bithynia, and it surely seems to have been something similar as they passed by, it says there, or passed through Mysia. Again, no ministry recorded. That had to add into it, because it could also include the more subtle adding of Luke to the team. Did that sharpen their eye toward Macedonia and the possibility of Philippi, if that's indeed where Luke was from? So it could include the more subtle adding of Luke to the team, just through the, the hint of the we passages beginning here. Then add in, at that point, on top of that, the cherry on the Sunday is Paul's vision at Troas. And all this together... Help them to see a pattern and discern and to conclude that God had called them to Macedonia. This is all part of God's plan. The denials and the delays, the, the closed door and the open invitation. All of it is part of God's sovereign purpose and plan. Do you see that in your life? Of course you do. We all do. We see the delays. We're not always inclined to interpret them the way we're feeling led to interpret them when they happen to the Apostle Paul, though. It's different for Paul. Paul's a different kind of Christian than us, right? Don't think that. He's a sinner saved by grace just as we are. The God who is sovereign over his life and work and ministry is sovereign over ours. And we should learn from what we see here because we're seeing things in Paul's experience that we're not used to seeing. Do we see it in our lives? Of course we do. There are delays all over the place. There are big ones. As you're part of a cattle call for some desirable job interview, just waiting or waiting for the sale of your house, or waiting for that report from the lab. Big ones like that. There's also small ones as you're just sitting at the light. And by the way, the small ones can oftentimes be harder than the big ones. That one's a tough one for me. I don't know how many times yesterday I'm rolling up to a light and it turns yellow when I'm just far enough away and the delay is introduced. That just wasn't on my calendar, and I would have to say it was very inefficient of the Lord to turn that light light yellow at that point. Sometimes the small ones are harder than the big ones, aren't they? Standing by our microwave. <laughs> or just figuring out what to do next at any point during the course of a day. Waiting is part of life for all of us. And evidently, we can see here, it's part of life for the apostles as well. My friends, this is where Psalm 27 starts to plug in. That great song about our God being our guide and our protector, our light and our salvation. That song about our God always being there when we call and that He will always be reliable to answer. It's time to hear that text as well. Always reliable throughout this life, we said, and right on into the next. Verse 13 in Psalm 27 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Isn't that a great verse? 
I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There in that verse, David is convinced that God will meet him in his need. He is confident that this God of light and salvation is going to meet him in his present need. And the way he says it, he's also confident that this God is going to meet him in his eternal need. I'm confident that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Echoes of resurrection in that rich verse. Therefore, he says in verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Have the courage to stop and wait. Wait for the Lord. This is just what Paul and his team were doing in their delay. They were doing Psalm 27 waiting. We need to do that ourselves. How long? How long? Do you recognize it? It's the cry of the persecuted saints throughout Scripture. How long, O Lord, waiting and waiting? But in answer to that question, their God always answers. He always answers in his time. And we can know along with David in Psalm 27 that his answers will always be good because he has promised to us that that's the end toward which he is working in the efficiencies and in the inefficiencies. He is working for our good. He is working for his good in us. He's working for our salvation. Peter talks about this in the third chapter of his second letter. Is God slow in judging sin? Is God slow in answering the question how long? No. No, God is patient. God is patient waiting for the salvation of those who will believe. God is always working on a purpose, even in the midst of the delays and the inefficiencies of life. So there are our first two principles. God does not always lead with what we would consider efficiency, delays, and false starts are not outside God's providence. And then number three, when we act is just as important as what we do. When we act is just as important as what we do. There had been delays from the start of this mission, hadn't there? First, the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Second, then the circumcision of Timothy. That had to involve recovery time before they traveled on. Now the Spirit saying no to this area and to that delays all along. What they were seeing, what we need to learn is essentially, simply put, not to rush. Not to rush ahead without the call of God being clear. Not to rush to the conclusion either that He has abandoned us, or or worse, that He doesn't care if we have to wait for a while to hear His leading, if He appears to be silent and the delays are happening. Not believing that God's attention is distracted and his focus is elsewhere and he'll get back to us once he has time in his schedule. 
It's not the God we serve. There is not a microsecond of delay in the history of the cosmos that has not been placed there by the sovereign will of a good and perfect God. Likewise, though this isn't the focus of this morning's message, nothing comes too quickly either. These areas of Paul's delays are familiar to us as well. Each of the categories. Relational conflict, that sets us aside for time. Medical procedures, those set us aside for time. Closed door on some life opportunity, that's a familiar one to us. Those are the three that I just listed that are part of the Apostle Paul's experience in Acts 15 and 16. Not uncommon for us at all. Is God as sovereign today as he was then? You bet he is. Let me change that. I venture to say that he is. Those are not odd categories at all, are they? They're part of real life. They're part of our real life. And they're part of the life of the apostles. And they're in the very hands of God. Psalm 27 Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He's worthy of our trust. He will lead and guide as we entrust ourselves to him. There is our answer, my friends. There is our answer. It looks different as each of us puts it into practice. In our own life circumstances, it'll look different. But there is our answer in the delays and in the false starts of this life. God is not absent And he does care, and he is attentive, and he does keep his promises, and he will be faithful. He's acting in us and through us and around us and for us to exalt his own glory through the very experiences of life that we face. What's the answer? Wait for the Lord. How do you do that? Be strong. Take courage and wait for the Lord. Is that some inner strength? Is that some inner courage that we we awaken within us somehow? Or is that the very work of God within us? That which strengthens us, that which gives us courage, is the faithful testimony of God throughout history to be true to his promises. Cling by faith to what the scriptures tell you is true of the living God And hold on to that through every season of waiting until the Lord God himself makes clear, here's the next step. Take it for my glory. And if you will, let's pray together and then let's celebrate the death that Jesus died for us, drawing us into this sort of richness in the very presence of God. Pray with me. And as I pray, musicians, please return to the platform and communion servers, uh, please gather at the front. Heavenly Father, thank you for this simple experience in the life of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. We can read so quickly past something like this that we miss the little indicators that show us what an amazing experience this was, even though it is shrouded in inactivity. 
But it also shows us, Father, that landing in the place of your appointment, even without a place to, to go and, and preach the gospel on a given morning with the absence of a synagogue, there are some women appointed to trust Christ as Savior along the banks of a river, and your work continues on to the praise of your glory and grace. So, oh, Father, I pray in our delays, in our false starts, that your spirit will be present enough for us to see and to trust, sufficient for us to wait on you, to be strong and to take courage and to wait for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's come now to the table of the Lord where those who have trusted Christ as Savior and know the God about whom we've been preaching this morning, know Him personally, are reconciled to Him through the work of His Son that is remembered here. Join us in this celebration, this remembering of the work that was done to accomplish our salvation and in this anticipation of its full and final delivery on the day of his return. We say often, but it's important to say, if you haven't trusted Christ as Savior, let these elements pass. But don't let this day pass without the opportunity to talk about these things. There are many people at Grace Church that would love to have that conversation with you, and I am among them. Come talk to one of us, and let's talk about what it means to have a relationship with the Lord that privileges us to participate in this sign of belonging to the New Covenant community, the sign of remembrance of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ that has reconciled us to God and to one another for eternity. Let's pray now and remember the body and blood of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. And as we remember now his death, strengthen our faith toward the very ends that we've been preaching this morning, Lord God. Strengthen our faith to trust you in the midst of the delays and the false starts and the inefficiencies of this life that we may reflect the character of God and bear the fruit of waiting even as we see in the lives of the missionaries in this text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.